Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Why, why, Marazia, yield to love's fierce fire? Why kisses from your husband kin desire? Like proud Herodias, would you know the bed of brothers twain, and by them both be led in wedlock home. Methinks you have forgot the words of John the Baptist. Marry not your brother's wife and put her from you now. The laws of Moses do not this allow. Marriage with brothers they permit indeed, but only tis done to raise up seed. For one who had no children ere he died, and all men know you as a fruitful bride who to your lord bought offspring. You will say our lady Venus, drunken with love's prey, cares not for things such as these. Tis all too true. And like an ox to sacrifice, King Q, came at your summons, hoping to obtain Rome for himself, and as her lord remain. O wicked wench, why seek you thus to bring ruin and trouble on a righteous king? Shall crime make you a queen? Nay, God's decree ordains that you from Rhone shall driven be. Antipodosis by Elliot Pratt of Cremona, circa 950 CE. And welcome to the other half, episode 4.4, Marazia, Ruling the Pornocracy. Before we get started today, I'd like to tell you about a great new podcast from one of my favourite authors. If you've read her book 5, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper, you will know how great Hallie Rubenhold is. And I am so excited about her new podcast, Bad Women, which is about, well, who better than Hallie herself to tell you, because she's written something for me to say. And she's a much better writer than me, in any case. Here we go. It's a cold case like no other. In 1888, five women were brutally murdered in a London slum. Attacks so violent, the killer earned himself a nickname, Jack the Ripper. But everything you think you know about Jack, and those women, is wrong. On Bad Women, historian Hallie Rubenhold uncovers the real lives of Jack's victims, revealing discrimination that put them in Jack's path. Misogyny women still face today. 
The show challenges established theories about the murders, causing many supposed Ripper experts to see red. Ooh, good, eh? You can find Bad Women wherever you get your podcasts, and I encourage you to do so. Speaking of Bad Women, today's episode is about one of the most infamous women in papal history, one at the heart of one of its most controversial periods. It has been called many names. Renaissance scholars call it the Seculum Obscurum, or Dark Century, while later historians have called it Government by the Mistresses and the Rule of the Harlots. But the most popular name, the one that has stuck with most till today, is Rule of the Prostitutes, or the Pornocracy, for short. Having said that, modern historians these days tend to say Seculum Obscurum, which is fancier and much less fun. Now, to set any of your worries at rest, despite the name, this episode will not contain any explicit content, so you can call all the kids back into the room. It's fine for them to hear. The Pornocracy was a six-decade-long period between about 904 and 964, in which 12 popes sat on the throne of St. Peter, many of whom were under the sway of two extraordinary women, the most notable of which is the subject of our episode today, Marazia. Her story is so fascinating, so juicy, that I cannot believe there's never been a proper biography written about her in English, let alone a TV series. Part of this may be due to a lack of sources, certainly ones that even pretend to be objective. The extract I read to you earlier is by a bishop called Leopold of Cremona, from a work he called Antipodosis, which loosely translates from Latin to mean revenge or retribution, which is the best name for a medieval source I've ever come across. It has chapters with juicy titles like Of the Two Dogs Presented to the Emperor and How They Tried to Bite Him, or Of the Ferocious Lion That Romanos Killed. But more pertinent to the story, there is also Marazia Invites King Hugh to Her Bed, which is an intriguing tidbit I will leave for later. Other sources of Marazia are not that much more positive, as they tend to be written after the time and by men who sought to blame her and her family for all the ills facing the papacy during the pornocracy. Much easier to blame the women than the popes, cardinals and bishops, who were the ones with real power. But again, more on that later. Probably the most infamous murderous harlot in papal history is, of course, Lucrezia Borgia, who I'll be covering in a later episode. But while much of what she's accused of is nonsense... For Marazia? Well, let's find out, shall we? But before we do so, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who keep the show going. If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. You can also find me on Facebook and Twitter at at the other half pod. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. In the 750s CE, Pope Stephen II struck a deal with the hobbity-sounding king Pepin of the Franks. In the so-called Donation of Pepin, the king gave the Pope a great swathe of territory in central Italy for him to rule. In return, the Pope agreed that, in terms of his earthly power, he would swear fealty to Pepin 
and to the Kingdom of the Franks. This line of allegiance was then later transferred over to the Holy Roman Empire after, you know, Charlemagne happened. This is one of the great turning points in papal, if not Western history, as now the Pope was both a great landowner and beholden to someone other than God. Once out of the hat, this was a rabbit that could not be easily stuffed back in. Now, we'll be coming back to this in future episodes, as the relationship between papacy and Holy Roman Empire would dominate Vatican politics for centuries, but for now, we'll be sticking to the early years. Now, while Charlemagne's French, German and Italian empire remained united, the Pope could at least be sure that he only had to please one man. When the empire split apart in the 870s, things got a lot more complicated. Roman politics had always been a rich person's blood sport, but without a powerful emperor to keep them in check, the local aristocracy could really run amok. Thus, we enter around a century where two families in particular treated the papacy as not so much a title of veneration, but as their own personal toy, and no one else was allowed to play with it. These family were the Crescentii and the Tusculani, and boy were they about to drag the papacy into the filth. The whole era was set off with the first ever papal assassination, when John VIII was first poisoned, and when that didn't work, was clubbed to death. He would not be the only pope in this period to meet with a sticky end. Then came a succession of popes who were a mixture of powerless, useless, or cruel, or a delightful cocktail of the three. It's in this period, for instance, that we get the infamous Cadaver Synod, where Pope Stephen VI exhumed his predecessor's body and put him on trial for perjury. So I think it's fair to say that the papacy wasn't exactly in tip-top shape when we entered the 10th century and the pontificate of Pope Sergius III, which began in 904, and is considered to be the genesis of the pornocracy. He had been part of that cadaver synod, and had come to power after a mad period of six popes in seven years, after overthrowing his predecessor Christopher, and having him and another imprisoned Pope Leo V strangled in prison. So, you know, nothing like literally tying up loose ends. He continued in that vein by declaring the four previous popes to have been uncanonically enthroned, undid all their decrees, and threatened all those opposed to him with mob violence. Mobs supplied, encouraged, and paid for by his backers, the Tusculani, to whom, of course, he was related. The people of Rome had grown used to being wooed by these powerful families, with tremendous rewards on offer if they did their bidding. The flick of a checkbook could see thousands on the streets, and no one had deeper pockets than the Tusculani. At that time, the head of the Tusculani was Count Theophylact, who was married to the formidable Theodora, who I will call Theodora Senior for reasons that will soon become apparent. As I've said, Theophylact was the richest guy in town, and so led the most powerful militia in the city, making him the guy in charge. He held a variety of lusty titles as well, including Master of the Paper Wardrobe, Master of the Troops, Roman Consul, and Senator. He was also allied with another count, Alberic of Spoleto, who ran all of the parts of central Italy that weren't under papal control. So these two guys were the two bosses of Rome, but there was a third, and that was Theodora Senior. She was active in Roman power politics herself, forming quite the power couple with Count Theophylact, 
with her acting as the brains of the outfit. Now, our primary sources for this period really, really hate the Tuscalani, so naturally, Theodora Senior is cast in an incredibly negative light. Our friendly Liutprad calls her a, quote, shameless harlot, and says that she, quote, exercised power in the most manly fashion. But while Liutprad is most certainly partial to bashing Theodora, he is at least a sort of reliable witness. He was around at this time, and so his descriptions do carry a little bit of weight, even if they need to be taken with an absolute barrel full of salt. Exercising power in the, quote, manly fashion is a common slam against women exercising power in the Middle Ages, held even today in some circles. And it tells us that Theodora was a powerful woman. The accusations of adultery, again, can potentially be seen in the same light. The basic assumption is that women in powerful positions must have achieved them and then maintained them by using sex. Theodora is commonly accused of sleeping with Pope Sergius, for example, but that seems somewhat unlikely to me. I do believe, however, that she would not have hesitated to use her body to its full advantage if it meant getting ahead of a rival. And while I'm not convinced, as I said before, she slept with Sergius, she certainly did engage in a lot of one what might call a bit of power sex. This was a time in Rome where sexual morals were, let's say, looser than one might imagine for the Middle Ages, where celibacy was virtually non-existent outside of cloistered monasteries. What is for sure, though, is that Theodora did sleep with her husband, with their marriage producing two daughters. Theodora Jr., and the subject of our episode today, Marazia. She was born around 819, and would have grown up learning the ways around the seedy, corrupt bowels of the Roman court. She would have seen up close how her mother had used sex to wean her way into power, and she may well have been trained in how to do so herself. Both she and her sister are described as being very beautiful, and it was not long before she started to attract male attention. When she was 15, Marazia became the lover of Pope Sergius. There was quite the age gap here, about 30 years or so, but this wasn't his first venture into sleeping with young women. He's been called, quote, the slave of every vice and the most wicked of men, which, even for this period in papal history, is quite the burn. This relationship between Pope and teenager may also have produced a son, but we'll come back to that a little later, because Marazia is about to take a step up in the world. As I said before, her parents were allied to Count Albrecht of Spoleto, and there is no better way to cement an alliance than a marriage. So, in 909, aged 19, she married Albrecht, a man undoubtedly older than her, but whose age is very unclear. Now, whether Marazzi's affair with Sergius continued after she got married is a highly contentious matter, and it matters quite a bit, as because just a year later, Marazia gave birth to her first son, John. As you might expect, Leopold claims that Sergius was the father, and the more reliable Liber Pontificalis also backs this up. However, some have argued that this is unlikely, that they would not have continued their affair after the marriage, as the alliance was so important to all concerned. However, I personally do believe this is the case, and there's one good reason for this. When they came to name their child, they did not name the child after Albrecht. That honour would fall to the second son, who was born a couple of years later. And it's also unusual for the eldest son to go into the church, which would be John's destiny. 
he would normally be expected to inherit his father's titles and lands and be trained as a warrior. The second son is usually the one that ends up in the Pope. But in this family, the roles were reversed. Of course, if Sergius was the father, then John did go into the father's profession. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So far, Marazzi had done all things right. She had a thorough education in power and knew how to do to exercise it. She had cultivated alliances with powerful people, married an influential husband, and given him heirs. She disappears a little from the scene for a couple of years, so we'll skip ahead a little to the death of Sergius III. Although he seems to have been a pretty reprehensible man, he had at least taken advantage of the weak status of the Holy Roman Empire to re-establish some of the power of the papacy. He was far more king than pope, but in many ways, who was on the throne of St Peter wasn't all that important at this time. The real power brokers were behind the throne of St Peter, Theophylact, and increasingly more importantly, Theodora. Together, the couple quickly acted, ensuring the appointment of, you know I'm not actually going to give you his name because he is so unimportant, as was his replacement, who came only a little bit after, Lando, who I'm only naming because I enjoy saying Pope Lando. Together, these two lasted about three years in total. So Theodora and Theophilac now wanted someone a little longer lasting. It seems that Theodora had the casting vote here, as she settled on Pope John X, whom Leoprad predictably says was her lover. And whether or not this is true, the two certainly were very, very close, with Theodora having sponsored his entire clerical career and then acted as his closest counsellor along with being, of course, a potential bedfellow. Now, John was a reasonably capable lackey. He was fairly intelligent, young enough that he wasn't about to drop dead at any moment, and was very good at cultivating alliances. That indeed had been what got him on the throne of St. Peter. By now, Marozzi had had all her children, and was building a nice little power base for herself. She was, therefore, somewhat myth to see her mother, far from retreating into the shadows, still pulling all the strings. As we have seen often in this podcast, and indeed before in the Queens of England, there was barely enough room at the top for one woman. Two was most definitely a crowd. Maurizio would not move just yet, but it was time to start scheming. Her greatest weapon at this time was her husband, who commanded the greatest military muscle available to the Tusculani, and by extension the papacy. In 916... Albrecht commanded a great Christian army, made up of Italians, including those from the German and Byzantine-controlled areas, against an army of Saracens that had established a colony near Rome. His decisive victory made Albrecht the most preeminent military commander in Italy, and gaining him the honour of the saviour of Christendom. While he was off winning glory, Marazia was back at home, simultaneously shining in his reflective glory while cultivating many influential contacts. Again, the sources have her doing this through quite the programme of extramarital affairs, and I am inclined to believe them in this case. Marazia was well-skilled in using her beauty and charm to get men to do what she wanted, and even managed to get herself named as Senator of Rome, a highly unusual title for a woman to hold. The sources also claim that at this time, Pope John began to switch his amorous affections from mother to daughter. Again, whether or not this is true, 
Maurizio's power was now beginning to eclipse that of her mother, and this generational shift in affection is a vivid display of that. Maurizio's sleeping the round is evidenced by the fact that her husband, around this time, moved out of Rome, heading back to Spoleto, and thus leaving his wife to do her philandering away from his gaze in the Eternal City. They would still get together for important occasions, with one such being a great conference of princes opposed to the Holy Roman Emperor in Spoleto. At that meeting, Maurizio would meet and possibly begin her relationship with a man called Hugh of Provence, but more on that later. Meanwhile, back in Rome, Pope John X had discovered his spine. He was beginning to act under the illusion that he could do things without the permission of the Tusculani, and that just wouldn't do. Maurizio yanked on her husband's chain, and Albrecht returned to the city with an army and forced the Pope out. However, this didn't last long, and before long, Albrecht was forced out due to militias organised by the Tusculani's rivals, and was then killed after a failed siege of the city. Now, this might seem to be a bit of a blow for Maurizia, but she does seem to have taken the death of Albrecht as a blessing. The two had never particularly got on, it was purely a marriage of convenience, and now that he was dead, she had his wealth at her disposal, held in trust, of course, until her son came of age. And then, not long after that, both of her parents died, of what history doesn't say. Being a wealthy, young widow raising a son was basically the ideal situation for a woman in the Middle Ages, and most women would have been content to live out her life in independent comfort. But Barozia wasn't built that way. She had seen her mother lord it over Rome, and she wanted a piece of that action. By the mid-920s, Maurizio had emerged as the new head of the Tusculani family. Through her late husband, she had rank, through her family, wealth, and from her skills and charms, she had a strong power base. She wanted to dominate Rome as her parents had done, and this was bad news for the Pope. Beneficial though her husband's death had been, it doesn't look good to be cozying up to the man who had caused his death. The one thing that she lacked from her arsenal was military muscle, and a man she could trust to lead them into battle. Her choice of husband was Guy of Tuscany, the Duke of Lucca. He too was no fan of John X, and together they managed to whip up enough opposition to him to have the Pope ousted and thrown into the dungeons of the Castel Sant'Angelo, where a little later he was smothered. So... We have a vacancy in the Vatican. Who would Maurizio choose? Her ultimate goal was to create a hereditary papacy, with her firmly positioned as the matriarch. However, her son was still in his mid-teens, and therefore too young to be a credible pope, even for the panocracy. Therefore, she had to make do with a couple of old puppets, one of which she may have had murdered when he got a bit uppity, until in 931... John, now at the ripe old age of 20 or so, was elevated to the papacy. Now, usually elevating a young man to a lofty office without any sort of training is a recipe for complete disaster. 
and Rome has seen its fair share of juvenile tyrants. See Caligula, Commodus and Caracalla as examples of how badly things could go wrong. However, it seems that John was no murderous egomaniac, which may have had a lot to do with Marazia's influence. She was the one that wielded the reins of power, while giving him enough to be getting along with. At some point around this time, Marazia seems to have gotten tired of husband number two. It's impossible to know exactly what happened to Guy. None of the sources mention how he died, and while some have added him to Marazia's whack list, I think that's unlikely. Leopold of Cremona accused Marazia of a lot worse, and if he didn't finger her for this murder, I think we can let her off the hook. However it happened, Marazia was now on the lookout for husband number three, and she didn't look far from home to find him. Guy had three brothers. One's not important, but the other two are. The first is Lambert, who inherited the Duchy of Lucca after Guy's death. They also had a half-brother from their mother's first marriage, and that is Hugh of Provence. Yes, it's finally time to introduce him into the picture. Hugh was one of the most powerful noblemen in the Holy Roman Empire. His great rival was a man called Rudolf of Burgundy, who in the early 920s had been proclaimed King of Italy by some Italian princes opposed to the then Holy Roman Empire. Rudolf ruled as king for around three years, until the Italians got completely sick of him and asked his rival, Hugh, to take his place. After a bit of light warfare, Hugh assumed the title in 926. Now, King of Italy sounds a lot more impressive than it actually was. For a start, it was one of many kingdoms within the Holy Roman Empire, and so had to pay homage to the emperor. For another, it only controlled what is now northern and central Italy and a bit of southeastern France, rather than the whole peninsula. And finally, it was only a paper crown, though the actual crown itself was real enough. It gave you a lot of prestige, to be sure, but it was only as powerful as the man wearing the crown. Anyway, I digress. By the early 930s, Marazia was nearly single, and so, by happy coincidence, was Hugh. Marriage between the King of Italy and the de facto ruler of Rome would seem to be an obvious and advantageous match. But there was a problem, a similar one indeed, that would bedevil King Henry VIII of England 600 years later. The church, you see, just isn't a fan of brothers marrying each other's wives. It was considered incest. But when you're in control of the Pope, a little thing like canon law can't get in the way of having a good time. So Marazia simply had her son declare her ex-husband and his brother Lambert as bastards. According to Leopold of Cremona, she spread a rumour that both Guy and Lambert had been bought from other women in an attempt by their mother to control her husband's lands for herself. Now, of course, this didn't affect Guy too much. He was dead. But as you can imagine, Lambert wasn't all that pleased about being declared a bastard especially as it led to all his titles being taken from him. He was a feisty chap, and fought a duel against a champion selected by Hugh to prove the righteousness of his cause. He won the duel, and claimed that it meant that God was on his side. Hugh promptly ignored God, and threw Lambert in jail, blinded him, and left him there to rot. Which doesn't really sound like cricket to me. This left the door open for Marazzi to marry her third and final husband a union that would see her become the Queen of Italy 
and be in line to be the next empress. Now, Hugh was expecting a little bit of trouble here. He was a foreigner and marrying a somewhat controversial woman, so came down to Rome to be married with a few thousand of his closest soldiers. You know, just to be sure. The unpopularity of the Union is captured in that passage from Leopred of Cremona that I read at the start of this episode, with its decrying of, quote, Our Lady Venus, drunken with love's play, cares not for things like these. Tis all true. And like an ox to sacrifice King Hugh, came at your summons, hoping to obtain Rome himself, and as her lord, remain. The wedding was held quickly, and boy oh boy, what an incredibly awkward affair it must have been. Both bride and groom had gallons of blood on their hands, and had bent every rule in the book to get there. The day itself was presided over by Pope John, and he also attended the festivities afterwards, like the dutiful son he was. However, like so many family weddings, there was drama. Maurizio's second son, Alberic, who had inherited his father's title of Countess Spoleto, was there, minding his own business, when his new stepfather ordered him to pour him some water. This he did, but then Hugh slapped him hard in the face, berating him for not doing it in a, quote, modest and respectful fashion. Now, Alberic was the son of two ambitious and headstrong parents, and must have been seething for some time at the actions of Hugh and his mother. So he made what one might politely call a bit of a scene. According to Leopred, he exclaimed, quote, The majesty of Rome has sunk to such depths of folly that she now obeys the orders of harlots. Could there be anything viler or more disgraceful than the city of Rome should be brought to ruin by the impurities of one woman? If he hit me, his stepson, in the face when he had just come here as our guest, what do you suppose he will do to you once he has taken root in the city? Albrecht's rhetoric managed to whip up a mob in the streets who laid siege to the Castel Sant'Angelo where his mother and stepfather were staying. Hugh managed to escape, but Maurizio was now her son's prisoner. Albrecht, like his father, became the de facto ruler of Rome. But unlike his father, he wanted to keep his mother as far as possible from the levers of power. She was now in her mid-forties, but had kept all of her good looks and charm, and still had powerful friends. She was far too dangerous to be set free. But equally, Albrecht knew, even in Rome at this time, there were some moral limits, and matricide was one of them. He kept her protected from his mobs, but kept her hidden away in the Castel Sant'Angelo. He even had his brother, John, excommunicate her. And so, just like that, Maurizio's time in the spotlight ended. After a while, all her friends abandoned her. All those relationships ended by one mistake, one misstep. She'd slept with popes, even born a child from one of them. She'd had many people killed, including at least one pope. She'd become a senator, a duchess, and even for one hot minute, a queen but now she was essentially nothing. It must have been hard for her in that jail cell. Well, it was actually probably a fairly comfortable retirement in some apartment, but very far from the splendour that she had become used to since birth. Outside the castle walls, Albrecht acted much like his mother's son, philandering all over the place, ruling through might, fear and bribery. And he did it very well. He even followed his mother into having a rather incestuous marriage, taking as his bride his stepsister, Alda, 
who of Hugh of Provence's brother. He had a son by her, but his more famous child was born by one of his mistresses, a boy with the rather lofty imperial name of Octavian, but whom would later become Pope John XII. The reign of John XII is considered the absolute nadir of the papacy. He had a considerable amount of lusty blood flowing through his veins, and when he came to the throne of St. Peter, aged 25, he treated the whole thing as an absolute joke. Power went completely to his head, and the Vatican resembled more like an unreconstructed frat house with unlimited women and alcohol, his whole tenure. One of his many mistresses was called Joan, and the revised Liber Pontificalis, compiled by Onofrio Panvinio during the Renaissance, claims that she may have been the basis for the legend of Pope Joan, so Marazia can possibly even add her to her familial list of achievements. But what happened to Marazia? Well, after five years, her excommunication was lifted, but after that, it all gets a little murky. Some sources have her dying in 937, which would make sense given the timing with the lifting her excommunication. An act of mercy, perhaps, allowing her mortal soul at least a chance of getting into heaven. This seems to me to be the most likely scenario. But there is a rather far-fetched story that has her living for many decades more, well into her late 90s. By then, the age of pornocracy was over, and the then Holy Roman Emperor had just taken over Rome. He was determined that the elderly Marozia, this last vestige of the pornocracy that had shamed Christendom, must be made to answer for her crimes. So he brought a bishop to her quarters, who laid out quite the charge sheet. She was blamed for basically everything that happened during her time in power, and that of her son Albrecht and her grandson Pope John. Her example, her conduct, had perverted them into monsters, and she had to be punished for that. Once it had all been read out, the bishop gave her absolution, left the room, whereupon Marozia was suffocated with a fancy cushion. Now, I can't find a single contemporary source that backs this up, and the idea of Marozia living that long while incarcerated seems highly unlikely to me. Still, even in death, Marozia's influence lived on. We've seen that she was the lover of two popes and the mother and grandmother of two more, but her family stranglehold over the papacy continued for another century. Her great-grandson became Benedict VIII, and her great-great-grandson was Benedict IX. She even had a nephew on the throne as well, through her sister Theodora Jr. It's often said that Marozia aimed to make the papacy into a hereditary monarchy, and as we can see, she did a pretty good job of it. The sources almost uniformly vilify her, as we have seen, with my favourite slam against her, mainly because it references an old friend from series one, came from Renaissance historian Cardinal Cesare Baronio. He called Marazia and her mother Theodora Senior, quote, vainglorious Messalinas, filled with fleshly lust and cunning in all forms of wickedness. They governed Rome and prostituted the throne of St. Peter for their minions and paramours. But while the moralists of the future have castigated Marazia, it's worth pointing out that she was living by the rules of the time. She just did it better than everyone else. And she was also a woman, which will always get you criticised about ten times more than men doing the exact same thing. So in some ways, there's nothing especially remarkable about Marazia's methods. This was a time of debauchery, bribery and violence in Italian history, 
and she rose to the top by learning the game from an expert in her mother and then staying there by the force of her will and skill. Leoprad rather exposes the inherent misogyny of his outlook when he criticised Marazia and her mother for exercising power in a, quote, manly fashion. That she did, but she also used what was available to her as a woman too, and did so very well. Let's not eulogise her. She was no saint, indeed far from being a good person at all. But she does occupy a unique position of being a papal matriarch, whose progeny ruled from the throne of St Peter decades after her death. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.